Chapter Two of the Confession. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Confession by Mary Roberts Reinhardt. Chapter Two. It may be said, and with truth, that so far I have recorded little but subjective terror, possibly easily explained by my occupancy of an isolated house, plus a few unimportant incidents, capable of various interpretations. But the fear was, and is today, as I look back, a real thing, as real and as difficult to describe, as a chill, for instance, a severe mental chill it was indeed. I went upstairs finally to a restless night, and rose early, after only an hour or so of sleep. One thing I was determined on, to find out, if possible, the connection between the terror and the telephone. I breakfasted early and was dressing to go to the village, when I had a visitor, no other than Miss Emily herself. She looked fluttered and perturbed at the unceremonious hour of her visit. She was the soul of convention, and explained, between breaths as it were, that she had come to apologize for the day before. She had hardly slept. I must forgive her. She had been very nervous since her brother's death, and small things upset her. How much of what I say of Miss Emily depends on my later knowledge, I wonder. Did I notice then that she was watching me furtively, or is it only on looking back that I recall it? I do recall it. The hall door open, and a vista of smiling garden beyond, and silhouetted against the sunshine, Miss Emily's frail figure and searching, slightly uplifted face. There was something in her eyes that I had not seen before, a sort of exultation. She was not, that morning, the Miss Emily who ran a finger along her baseboards to see if we dusted them. She had walked out, and it had exhausted her. She breathed in little gasps. I think she said at last, that I must telephone for Mr. Staley. I am never very strong in hot weather. Please let me call him for you, Miss Emily. I'm not a young woman, and she was at least sixty-five. But, because she was so small and frail, I felt almost a motherly anxiety for her that morning. I think I should like to do it, if you don't mind. We are old friends. He always comes promptly when I call him. She went back alone, and I waited in the doorway. When she came out, she was smiling, and there was more color in her face. He is coming at once. He is always very thoughtful for me. Now, without any warning, something that had been seething since her breathless arrival took shape in my mind and became suspicion. What if it had been Miss Emily who had called me the second time to the telephone, and having established the connection, had waited, breathing hard for what? It was fantastic, incredible in the light of that brilliant summer day. I looked at her, dainty and exquisite as ever, her rushings fresh and white, her very face indicative of decorum and order, her wistful old mouth still rather like a child's, her eyes, always slightly upturned, because of her diminutive height, 
so that she had habitually a look of adoration. "'One of Earth's saints,' the rector had said to me on Sunday morning. "'A good woman, Miss Blakiston, and a sacrifice to an unworthy family.' Suspicion is like the rain. It falls on the just and on the unjust, and that morning I began to suspect Miss Emily. I had no idea of what. On my mentioning an errand in the village, she promptly offered to take me with her in this daily hack. She had completely altered in manner. The strain was gone. In her soft, low voice, as we made our way to the road, she told me the stories of some of the garden flowers. "'The climbing rose over the arch, my dear,' she said. "'My mother brought from England on her wedding journey. "'People have taken cuttings from it again and again, "'but the cuttings never thrive. "'A bad winter, and they are gone. "'But this one has lived. "'Of course, now and then it freezes down.' "'She chattered on, and my suspicions grew more and more shadowy. "'They would have gone, I think.' had not Maggie called me back with a grocery list. "'A sack of flour,' she said, "'and some green vegetables, and—' "'Miss Agnes, that woman was down on her knees beside the telephone, "'and blowing for the laundry, and I guess that's all.' "'The telephone. It was always the telephone.' "'We drove on down the lane, eyed somnolently by spotted cows and incurious sheep.' And all the way Miss Emily talked. She was almost garrulous. She asked the hackman about his family, and stopped the vehicle to pick up a peddler, overburdened with his pack. I watched her with amazement. Evidently, this was Mr. Staley's Miss Emily, but it was not mine. But I saw mine, too, that morning. It was when I asked the hackman to put me down at the little telephone building, I thought she put her hand to her throat, although the next moment she was only adjusting the ruching at her neck. You... you have decided to have the second telephone put in, then? I hesitated. She so obviously did not want it installed. And was I to submit meekly to the fear again, without another effort to vanquish it? I think not, dear Miss Emily, I said at last, smiling at her drawn face. Why should I disturb your lovely old house in its established order? But I want you to do just what you think best, she protested. She had put her hands together. It was almost a supplication. As to the strange night calls, there was little to be learned. The night operator was in bed. The manager made a note of my complaint and promised an investigation, which... Having had experience with telephone investigations, I felt would lead nowhere. I left the building with my grocery list in my hand. The hack was gone, of course. But, I may have imagined it, I thought I saw Miss Emily peering at me from behind the bonnets and hats in the milliner's window. I did not investigate. The thing was enough on my nerves as it was. Maggie served me my luncheon in a sort of strained silence. She observed once, as she brought me my tea, that she was giving me notice and intended leaving on the afternoon train. She had, she stated, holding out the sugar bowl to me at arm's length, stood a great deal in the way of irregular hours for me, seeing as I would read myself to sleep, 
and let the light burn all night, although very fussy about the gas bills. But she had reached the end of her tether, and you could grate a lemon on her most anywhere. She was that covered with goose flesh. Goose flesh about what? I demanded. And either throw the sugar to me or come closer. I don't know about what, she said suddenly. I'm just scared. And for once, Maggie and I were in complete harmony. I, too, was just scared. We were, however, both of us, much nearer a solution of our troubles than we had any idea of. I say solution, although it but substituted one mystery for another. It gave tangibility to the intangible, indeed, but I cannot see that our situation was any better. I, for one, found myself in the position of having a problem to solve, and no formula to solve it with. The afternoon was quiet. Maggie and the cook were in the throes of jelly-making, and I had picked up a narrative history of the county, written most pedantically, although with here and there a touch of heavy lightness, by Miss Emily's father, the Reverend Samuel Thaddeus Benton. On the fly-leaf she had inscribed, written by my dear father, during the last year of his life, and published after his death, by the parish to which he had given so much of his noble life. The book left me cold, but the inscription warmed me. Whatever feeling I might have had about Miss Emily died of that inscription. A devoted and self-sacrificing daughter, a woman both loving and beloved, that was the Miss Emily of the dedication to fifty years in Bolivar County. In the middle of the afternoon, Maggie appeared with a saucer and a teaspoon. In the saucer, she had poured a little of the jelly to test it, and she was blowing on it when she entered. I put down my book. Well, I said, don't tell me you're not dressed yet. You've just got about time for the afternoon train. She gave me an imploring glance over the saucer. You might just take a look at this, Miss Agnes, she said. It gels around the edges, but in the middle. I'll send your trunk tomorrow, I said, and you'd better let Delia make the jelly alone. You haven't much time, and she says she makes good jelly. She raised anguish eyes to mine. Me, Agnes, she said. That woman's never made a glass of jelly in her life before. She didn't even know about putting a silver spoon in the tumblers to keep them from breaking. I picked up Bolivar County and opened it, but I could see that the hands holding the saucer were shaking. I'm not going, Miss Agnes, said Maggie. I had, of course, known she would not. The surprising thing to me is that she never learns this fact, although she gives me notice quite regularly. She always thinks that she's really going until the last. Of course, you can let that woman make the jelly if you want. It's your fruit and sugar. But I'm not going to desert you in your hour of need. What do I need? I demanded. Jelly? But she was past sarcasm. She placed the saucer on the table and rolled her stained hands in her apron. That woman, she said. What was she doing under the telephone stand? She almost immediately burst into tears, and it was some time before I caught what she feared, for she was more concrete than I, and she knew now what she was afraid of. It was either a bomb or a fire. Mark my words, Miss Agnes, 
she said. She's going to destroy the place. What made her set out and rent it for almost nothing if she isn't? And I know who rings the telephone at night. It's her. What on earth for? I demanded, as ungrammatical and hardly less uneasy than Maggie. She wakes us up so we can get out in time. She's a preacher's daughter. More than likely she draws the line at bloodshed. That's one reason. Maybe there's another. What if by pressing a button somewhere and ringing that bell, it sets off a bomb somewhere? It never has, I observed dryly. But however absurd Maggie's logic might be, she was firm in her major premise. Miss Emily had been on her hands and knees by the telephone stand, and had, on seeing Maggie, observed that she had dropped the money for the hackman out of her glove. Which I don't believe. Her gloves were on the stand. If you'll come back, Miss Agnes, I'll show you how she was. We made rather an absurd procession, Maggie leading with the saucer, I following, and the cat, appearing from nowhere as usual, bringing up the rear. Maggie placed the jelly on the stand, and dropped on her hands and knees, crawling under the stand, a confused huddle of gingham apron, jelly stains, and suspicion. She had her head down like this, she said in rather a smothered voice. I'm her, and you're me, and I says, if it's rolled off somewhere, I'll find it next time I sweep and give it back to you. Well, what do you think of that? Here it is. My attention had by this time been caught by the jelly, now unmistakably solidifying in the center. I moved to the kitchen door to tell Delia to take it off the fire. When I returned, Maggie was digging under the telephone battery box with a hairpin and muttering to herself. Darnation, she said, it's gone under. If you do get it, I reminded her, it belongs to Miss Emily. There's a curious strain of cupidity in Maggie. I've never been able to understand it. With her own money, she is as free as air. But let her see a chance for a legitimate gain, of finding a penny on the street, of not paying her fare on the cars, of passing a bad quarter, and she is filled with an unholy joy. And so today, the jelly was forgotten. Terror was gone. All that existed for Maggie was a twenty-five-cent piece under a battery box. Suddenly she wailed. "'It's gone, Miss Agnes. It's clear under.' "'Good heavens, Maggie. What difference does it make? Do you mind if I got the ice-pick and unscrewed the box?' "'My menage is always notoriously short of tools.' I approbated at once and ordered her back to the kitchen, and after a final squint along the carpet— Head flat, she dragged herself out and to her feet. I'll get the jelly off, she said, and then maybe a hatpin will reach it. I can see the edge of it. A loud crack from the kitchen announced that the cook had forgotten the silver spoon and took Maggie off on a jump. I went back to the library in Bolivar County, and I must confess to a nap in my chair. I was roused by the feeling that someone was staring at me. My eyes focused first on the ice-pick, and then, as I slowly raised them, on Maggie's face, set in hard and uncompromising lines. "'I'd thank you to come with me,' 
she said stiffly. Come where? To the telephone. I groaned inwardly, but because submission to Maggie's tyranny has become a firm habit with me, I rose. I saw then that she held a dingy quarter in one hand. Without a word, she turned and stalked ahead of me into the hall. It is curious, looking back and remembering, that she had then no knowledge of the significance of things, to remember how hard and inexorable her back was. Viewed through the light of what followed, I have never been able to visualize Maggie moving down the hall. It has always been a menacing figure, rather shadowy than real, and the hall itself takes on grotesque proportions, becomes inordinately long, an infinity of hall, fading away into time and distance. Yet it was only a moment, of course, until I stood by the telephone. Maggie had been at work. The wooden box which covered the battery jars had been removed, and lay on its side. The battery jars were uncovered, giving an effect of mystery unveiled, a sort of shamelessness, of destroyed illusion. Maggie pointed. "'There's a paper under one of the jars,' she said. "'I haven't touched it, but I know well enough what it is.' "'I've not questioned Maggie on this point, but I am convinced that she had expected to find a sort of final summons of that visiting card for one or the other of us. The paper was there, a small folded scrap, partially concealed under a jar. The imprints was there, too, Maggie said noncommittally. The box had accumulated the flocculent floating particles of months, possibly years, lint from the hall carpet, giving it a reddish tinge. And in this light, an evanescent deposit, fluttered by a breath, fingers had moved, searched, and I am tempted to say groped, although the word seems absurd for anything so small. The imprint of Maggie's coin and of her attempts at salvage were at the edge and quite distinct from the others. I lifted the jar and picked up the paper. It was folded and refolded, until it was not much larger than a thumbnail a rather stiff paper crossed with faint blue lines. I am not sure that I would have opened it. It had been so plainly in hiding, and was so obviously not my affair. Had not Maggie suddenly gasped and implored me not to look at it? I immediately determined to examine it. Yet, after I had read it twice, it had hardly made an impression on my mind. There are some things so incredible that the brain automatically rejects them. I looked at the paper. I read it with my eyes, but I did not grasp it. It was not note paper. It was apparently torn from a tablet of glazed and ruled paper, just such paper, for instance, as Maggie soaks in brandy and places on top of her jelly before tying it up. It had been raggedly torn. The scrap was the full width of the sheet, but only three inches or so deep. It was undated, and this is what it said. To whom it may concern, on the 30th day of May, 1911, I killed a woman here in this house. I hope you will not find this until I am dead. Signed, Emily Benton. 
Maggie had read the confession over my shoulder, and I felt her body grow rigid. As for myself, my first sensation was one of acute discomfort, that we should have exposed the confession to the light of day. Neither one of us, I am sure, had really grasped it. Maggie put a trembling hand on my arm. "'The breath of her,' she said, in a thin, terrified voice, "'and sitting in church like the rest of us. "'Oh, my God, Miss Agnes, put it back!' I rolled on her, in a fury that was almost an outlet for my own shock. "'Once and for all, Maggie,' I said, "'I'll ask you to wait until you are spoken to, "'and if I hear that you have so much as mentioned this piece of paper,' Out you go, and never come back. But she was beyond apprehension. She was literal, too. She saw, not Miss Emily, unbelievably associated with a crime, but the crime itself. Who do you suppose it was, Miss Agnes? I don't believe it at all. Someone has placed it there to hurt Miss Emily. It's her writing, said Maggie doggedly. After a time, I got rid of her and sat down to think in the library. Rather, I sat down to reason with myself. For every atom of my brain was clamoring that this thing was true, that my little Miss Emily, exquisite and fine as she was, had done the thing she claimed to have done. It was her own writing, thin, faintly shaded, as neat and as erect as herself. But even that I would not accept until I had compared it with such bits of hers as I possessed, the note begging me to take the house, the inscription on the fly-leaf of fifty years in Bolivar County. And here was something I could not quite understand. The writing was all of the same order, but while the confession and the inscription in the book were similar, letter for letter, in the note to me there were differences, a change in the T in Benton, a fuller and blacker stroke, a variation in the terminals of the letters. It is hard to particularize. I spent the remainder of the day in the library, going out for dinner, of course, but returning to my refuge again immediately after. Only in the library am I safe from Maggie. By virtue of her responsibility for my wardrobe, she virtually shares my bedroom. But her respect for books she never reads makes her regard a library as at least semi-holy ground. She dusts books with more caution than China, and her respect for a family Bible is greater than her respect for me. I spent the evening there, Miss Emily's cat on the divan, and the mysterious confession lying before me under the lamp. At night, the variation between it and her note to me concerning the house seemed more pronounced. The note looked more like a clumsy imitation of Miss Emily's own hand. Or perhaps this is nearer as if, after writing in a certain way for sixty years, she had tried to change her style. All my logic ended in one conclusion. She must have known the confession was there. Therefore, the chances were that she had placed it there. But it was not so simple as that. Both crime and confession indicated a degree of impulse that Miss Emily did not possess. I have entirely failed with my picture of Miss Emily, if the word violence can be associated with her in any way. Miss Emily was a temple, clean-swept, cold, and empty. She never acted on impulse. Every action, almost every word, 
seemed the result of thought and deliberation. Yet if I could believe my eyes, five years before she had killed a woman in this very house, possibly in the very room in which I was then sitting. I find on looking back that the terror must have left me that day. It had, for so many weeks, been so much a part of my daily life that I would have missed it had it not been for this new and engrossing interest. I remember that the long French windows of the library reflected the room like mirrors against the darkness outside, and that once I thought I saw a shadowy movement in one of them, as though a figure moved behind me. But when I turned sharply, there was no one there, and Maggie proved to be, as usual after nine o'clock, shut away upstairs. I was not terrified, and indeed the fear never returned. In all the course of my investigations, I was never again a victim of the unreasoning fright of those earlier days. My difficulty was that I was asked to believe the unbelievable. It was impossible to reconstruct in that quiet house a scene of violence. It was equally impossible, in view, for instance, of that calm and filial inscription in the history of Bolivar County, to connect Miss Emily with it. She had killed a woman, forsooth. Miss Emily of the baby Afghans, of the weary peddler, of that quiet seat in the church. Yet I knew now that Miss Emily knew of the confession, knew at least of something concealed in that corner of the rear hall which housed the telephone. Had she by chance an enemy who would have done this thing? But to suspect Miss Emily of an enemy was as absurd as to suspect her of a crime. I was completely at a loss when I put out the lights and prepared to close the house. As I glanced back along the hall, I could not help wondering if the telephone, having given up its secret, would continue its nocturnal alarms. As I stood there, I heard the low growl of thunder and the patter of rain against the windows. Partly out of loneliness, partly out of bravado, I went back to the telephone and tried to call Willie, but the line was out of order. I slept badly. Shortly after I returned, I heard a door slamming repeatedly, which I knew meant an open window somewhere. I got up and went into the hall. There was a cold air coming from somewhere below, but as I stood there, it ceased. The door above stopped slamming, and silence reigned again. Maggie roused me early. The morning sunlight was just creeping into the room, and the air was still cool with the night and fresh washed by the storm. Miss Agnes, she demanded, standing over me, did you let the cat out last night? I brought him in before I went to bed. Hm, <laughs> said Maggie. And did I or did I not wash the doorstep yesterday? You ought to know. You said you did. Miss Agnes, Maggie said, that woman was in this house last night. You can see her footprints as plain as day on the doorstep. And what's more, she stole the cat and let out your mother's paisley shawl. Which statements, corrected, proved to be true. My old paisley shawl was gone from the hall rack, and unquestionably the cat had been on the back doorstep that morning, along with the milk bottles. Moreover, 
one of my fresh candles had been lighted, but had burned only for a moment or two. That day I had a second visit from young Martin Sprague. The telephone was in working order again, having unaccountably recovered, and I was using it when he came. He watched me quizzically from a position by the newel post as I rang off. I was calling Miss Emily Benton, I explained, but she is ill. Still troubled with telephobia? I have other things to worry me, Martin, I said gravely, and let him into the library. There I made a clean breast of everything. I omitted nothing. The fear, the strange ringing of the telephone bell, the gasping breathing over it the night before, Miss Emily's visit to it, and, at last, the discovery. He took the paper when I offered it to him, and examined it carefully by the window. Then he stood looking out and whistling reflectively. At last he turned back to the room. "'It's an unusual story,' he said. "'But if you'll give me a little time, I'll explain it to you. "'In the first place, let go of the material things for a moment, "'and let's deal with minds and emotions. "'You're a sensitive person, Miss Agnes. "'You catch a lot of impressions that passed most people by. "'And first of all, you've been catching fright from two sources.' Two sources? Two. Maggie is one. She hates the country. She is afraid of old houses. And she sees in this house only the ghosts of people who have died here. I pay no attention to Maggie's fears. You only think that. But to go further, you have been receiving waves of apprehension from another source. From the little lady, Miss Emily. Then you think... Hold on, he said, smiling. I think she wrote that confession. Yes. As a matter of fact, I'm quite sure she did. And she has established a system of espionage on you by means of the telephone. If you had discovered the confession, she knew that there would be a change in your voice, in your manner. If you answered very quickly, as though you had been near the instrument, perhaps in the very act of discovering the paper. Don't you get it? And can't you see how her terror affected you even over the wire? Don't you think that, if thought can travel untold distances, fear can? Of course. But Martin, I exclaimed, little Miss Emily, a murderess? He threw up his hands. Certainly not, he said. You're a shrewd woman, Miss Agnes. Do you know that a certain type of woman frequently confesses to a crime she never committed? or had any chance of committing? Look at the police records. Confessions of women as to crimes they could only have heard of through the newspapers. I would like to wager that if we had the newspapers of that date that came into this house, we would find a particularly atrocious and mysterious murder being featured, the murder of a woman. You do not know her, I maintained doggedly, and drew as best I could a sketch of Miss Emily, while he listened attentively. A pure neurasthenic type, was his comment, older than usual, but that is accountable by the sheltered life she has led. Little Miss Emily is still at heart a girl, and a hysterical girl. She has had enough trouble to develop her. Trouble? Has she ever had a genuine emotion? Look at this house. She nursed an old father in it, 
a bedridden mother, a paretic brother, when she should have been having children. Don't you see it, Miss Agnes? All her emotions have had to be mental. Failing them outside, she provided them for herself. This, he tapped the paper in his hand, this is one. I had heard of people confessing to crimes they had never committed, and at the time, Martin Sprague at least, partly convinced me. He was so sure of himself, and when, that afternoon, he telephoned me from the city to say that he was mailing me some old newspapers, I knew quite well what he had found. "'I've thought of something else, Miss Agnes,' he said. "'If you look it up, you will probably find that the little lady had had either a shock some time before that, or a long pool of nursing. Something, anyhow, to set her nervous system to going in the wrong direction.' Late that afternoon, as it happened, I was enabled to learn something of this from a visiting neighbor, and once again I was forced to acknowledge that he might be right. The neighbors had not been over-cordial. I had gathered, from the first impression, that the members of the Reverend Samuel Thaddeus Benton's congregation did not fancy an interloper among the sacred relics of the historian of Bolivar County, and I had a corroboration of that impression from a visitor of that afternoon. A Mrs. Graves. I've been slow in coming, Miss Blakiston, she said, seating herself primly. I don't suppose you can understand, but this has always been the Benton place, and it seems strange to us to see new faces here. I replied with some asperity that I had not been anxious to take the house, but that Miss Emily had been so insistent that I had finally done so. It seemed to me that she flashed a quick glance at me. "'She's quite the most loved person in the valley,' she said. "'And she loves the place. It is—I cannot imagine why she rented to the house. She is far from comfortable where she is.' After a time I gathered that she suspected financial stringency as the cause, and I tried to set her mind at rest. "'It cannot be money,' I said. "'The rent is absurdly low.' The agent wished her to ask more, but she refused. She sat silent for a time, pulling at the fingers of her white silk gloves, and when she spoke again it was of the garden. But before she left, she returned to Miss Emily. "'She has had a hard life, in a way,' she said. "'It is only five years since she buried her brother, and her father not long before that. She has broken a great deal since then. Not that the brother—' I understand he was a great care. Mrs. Graves looked about the room, its shelves piled high with the ecclesiastical library of the late clergyman. It is not only that, she said, when he was... All right, he was an atheist. Imagine, in this house, he had the most terrible books, Miss Blakiston. And, of course, when a man believes there is no hereafter, he is apt to lead a wicked life. There is nothing to hold him back. Her mind was on Miss Emily and her problems. She moved abstractedly toward the door. In this very hall, she said, I helped Miss Emily pack all the books into a box, and we sent for Mr. Staley, the hackman of the station, you know, and he dumped the whole thing into the river. We went away with him, and how she cheered up when it was done. 
Martin Sprague's newspapers arrived the next morning. They bore a date of two days before the date of the confession, and contained, rather triumphantly, outlined in blue pencil, full details of the murder of a young woman by some unknown assassin. It had been a grisly crime, and the paper was filled with details of a most sensational sort. Had I been asked, I would have said that Miss Emily's clear, slightly upturned eyes had never glanced beyond the merest headlines of such journalistic reports. But in a letter Martin Sprague set forth a precisely opposite view. You will probably find, he wrote, that the little lady is pretty well fed up on such stuff. The calmer and more placid the daily life, the more apt is the secret inner one, in such a circumscribed existence, to be a thriller. You might look over the books in the house. There is a historic case where a young girl swore she had tossed her little brother to a den of lions, although there were no lions near, and little brother was subsequently found asleep in the attic, after reading Fox's Book of Martyrs. Probably the old gentleman has his joke book in his library. I put down his letter and glanced around the room. Was he right after all? Did women, rational, truthful, devout women, ever act in this strange manner? And if it was true, was it not in its own way as mysterious as everything else? I was, for a time that day, strongly influenced by Martin Sprague's conviction. It was, for one thing, easier to believe than that Miss Emily Benton had committed a crime, and as if to lend color to his assertion, the sunlight, falling onto the dreary bookshelves, picked out and illuminated dull gilt letters on the brown back of a volume. It was Fox's Book of Martyrs. If I may analyze my sensations at that time, they divided themselves into three parts. The first was fear. That seems to have given away to curiosity, and that at a later period to an intense anxiety. Of the three, I have no excuse for the second, save the one I gave myself at the time that Miss Emily could not possibly have done the thing she claimed to have done, and that I must prove her innocence to myself. With regard to Martin Sprague's theory, I was divided. I wanted him to be right. I wanted him to be wrong. No picture I could visualize of little old Miss Emily conceivably fitted the type he had drawn. On the other hand, nothing about her could possibly confirm the confession as an actual one. The scrap of paper became, for the time, my universe. Did I close my eyes, I saw it side by side with the inscription in fifty years of my Bolivar County, and letter for letter, in the same hand. Did the sun shine, I had it in the light, examining it, reading it. To such a point did it obsess me, that I refused to allow Maggie to use a tablet of glazed paper she had found in the kitchen table drawer to tie up the jelly glasses. It seemed somehow horrible to me. At that time I had no thought of going back five years and trying to trace the accuracy or falsehood of the confession. I should not have known how to go about it. Had such a crime been committed, how to discover it at this late day? Whom in all her sheltered life could Miss Emily have murdered? In her small world, who could have fallen out and left no sign? It was impossible, and I knew it, and yet...
Miss Emily was ill. The news came through the grocery boy, who came out every day on a bicycle, and teased the cat, and carried away all the pears as fast as they ripened. Maggie brought me the information at luncheon. "'She's sick,' she said. There was only one person in both our minds those days. "'Do you mean really ill, or only—' "'The boy says she's breaking up. If you ask me, she caught cold the night she broke in here and took your paisley shawl. And if you ask my advice, Miss Agnes, you'll get it back again before the heirs step in and claim it. They don't make them shawls nowadays, and she's as like as not to wield it to somebody if you don't go after it. Maggie, I said quietly, how do you know that she has that shawl? How did I know that the paper was in the telephone box? She countered. And indeed, by that time, Maggie had convinced herself that she had known all along there was something in the telephone battery box. "'I have a sort of second sight, Miss Agnes,' she added, and with a shrewdness I found later was partially correct. She was snooping around to see if you'd found that paper, and it came on to rain, so she took the shawl. "'I should say,' said Maggie, lowering her voice, "'that as like as not she's been in this house every night since we came.' Late that afternoon I cut some of the roses from the arch for Miss Emily, and wrapping them against the sun, carried them to the village. At the last I hesitated. It was so much like prying. I turned aside at the church, intending to leave them there for the altar. But I could find no one in the parish house, and no vessel to hold them. It was late afternoon. I opened a door and stepped into the old church. I knelt for a moment and then sat back and surveyed the quiet building. It occurred to me that here one could obtain a real conception of the Benton family, and of Miss Emily. The church had been the realest thing in their lives. It had dominated them, obsessed them. When the Reverend Samuel Tadeus died, they had built him not a monument, but a parish house. When Carlo Benton died, However, did such an ungodly name come to belong to a Benton? Miss Emily, according to the story, had done without fresh mourning and built him a window. I looked at the window. It was extremely ugly and very devout, and under it was a dead man's name and two dates, 1860 and 1911. So, Carla Benton had died the year Miss Emily claimed to have done a murder. Another proof, I reflected, that Martin Sprague would say. He had been on her hands for a long time, both well and ill. Small wonder if little Miss Emily had fallen to imagining things or to confessing them. I looked at the memorial window once more, and I could almost visualize her gathering up the dead man's hateful books, and getting them as quickly as possible out of the house. Quite possibly, there were unmentionable volumes among them. De Maupassant, perhaps Boccaccio. I had a distinct picture, too, of Mrs. Graves, lips primly set, assisting her with hands that fairly itched with the righteousness of her actions. I still held the roses, and as I left the church, I decided to lay them on some grave in the churchyard. I thought it quite likely that roses from the same arch had been frequently used for that purpose. 
some very young grave, I said to myself, and found one soon enough, a bit of a rectangle of fresh earth, and a jar full of pansies on it. It lay in the shadow of the Benton mausoleum. That was how I found that Carlo Benton had died on the 27th of May, 1911. I cannot claim that the fact at that time had any significance for me, or that I saw in it anything more than another verification of Martin Sprague's solution. But it enabled me to reconstruct the Benton household at the date that had grown so significant. The 30th would have probably been the day after the funeral. Perhaps the nurse was still there. He had had a nurse for months, according to Mrs. Graves, and there would have been the airing that follows long illness and death, the opened windows, the packing up or giving away of clothing, the pauses and silences, the sense of strangeness and quiet, the lowered voices, and there would have been, too, that remorseless packing for destruction of the dead atheist books. And sometime during the day or the night that followed, little Miss Emily claimed to have committed her crime. I went home thoughtfully. At the gate, I turned and looked back. The Benton mausoleum was warm in the sunset, and the rose sprays lay like outstretched arms across a tiny grave. Maggie is amazingly efficient. I am efficient myself, I trust, but I modify it with intelligence. It is not to me a vital matter, for instance, if three dozen glasses of jelly sit on a kitchen table a day or two after they are prepared for retirement to the fruit cellar. I rather like to see them, marshaled in their neat rows, capped with sealing wax and paper, and armed with labels. But Maggie has neither sentiment nor imagination. Jelly to her is an institution, not an inspiration. It is subject to certain rules and rights, of which not the least is the formal interment in the fruit closet. Therefore, after protesting that night, I agreed to visit the fruit cellar, and select a spot for the temporary entombing of thirty-six jelly tumblers, which would have been thirty-seven, had Dullian known the efficacy of a silver spoon. I can recall vividly the mental shift from the confession to that domestic excursion, my own impatience, Maggie's grim determination, and the curious denouement of that visit. End of chapter 2